Chapter One of The Practice of Prayer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. The Practice of Prayer by G. Campbell Morgan. Chapter One Preliminary. And it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, that when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, even as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive every one that is indebted to us, and bring us not into temptation. And he said unto them, which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to thee. I say to you, Though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, Yet because of his importunity he will arise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. And which of you that is a father shall his son ask a loaf, and he give him a stone, or a fish, and he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Luke chapter 11 verses 1 to 13 Never did the disciples prefer a more important request than when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And no petition was more graciously answered. The church today needs to bring that petition first of all, but she needs to do so remembering that she already has the answer in all spaciousness and clearness. Whatever may have been the case with the first disciples, it is certainly true of us that before we call, he answers. I have chosen as the general title of this book, The Practice of Prayer, because the purpose of its publication is preeminently practical. Any discussion of the doctrine of prayer which does not issue in the practice of prayer is not only not helpful, it is dangerous. At the same time, that practice will be greatly helped by an apprehension of the relative Christian doctrine. That there is need for its consideration is granted on every hand. Side by side, with a great enrichment, there is a widespread impoverishment in the church of God. The consciousness of wealth creates the sense of poverty, and it is because we rejoice in our gain that we mourn over our lack. As to enrichment, there can be no question that the church's appreciation of Jesus Christ is keener and more spacious today than it has ever been. There is today a widespread consciousness of the human Christ and this has brought assurance of his interest in all departments of human life. Coincidentally with this, there has arisen a conviction of his universality, 
and while rejoicing as never in the warmth and nearness of the flesh, we have come to a larger apprehension of the infinitude of the word. In practical equipment for service to the church in men, in money, and in methods, is far in advance of any preceding age. Yet in all these things there is a sense of lack and of poverty. While the sense of the greatness of Christ is larger, the ability to bring men into loving, saving touch with him sometimes seems less. The men at his disposal are many, but the church lacks energy to send them forth. Money is more freely given than ever, and yet the greater part of the possessions of the saints is still retained for their own use. The methods are multiplied, and yet one cannot help the conviction that many of our organizations are fungus gross, sapping the church's life and contributing nothing to her fruitfulness. We are profoundly conscious of lack. Everywhere there is a double sense, that of power and of paralysis. We have heard the sound of the going in the top of the mulberry trees, but the wind of God seems to tarry. We saw the flaming of the bush among the Welsh mountains a little while ago, but we have seen it in England. All about us are indifferent masses. We still mourn the dearth of conversions and are painfully conscious of the languishing missionary spirit. Where is the lack? That is a larger question than it is the purpose of this book to discuss. Nevertheless, I think it may broadly be stated that the supreme need of the Church is the realization experimentally of her relationship to God by the Holy Spirit. The interaction of life and prayer will be found the secret of power, and the realization of fellowship with God will never be more than a theory, save as prayer becomes a practice. I am particularly anxious to write nothing censorious, or that fails in recognition of all the best things still to be found against us. I am profoundly conscious that there is a great deal of prayer on the highest plane. God has his intercessors everywhere. They are to be found often in unexpected places, in men and women who have learned the secret and who by familiar intercourse with God are channels of blessing to men. But the majority of us are not praying. While I thank God for the prayers being offered, I feel that it is of the utmost importance that the whole church should know the secret of prevailing prayer, not only as a theory, but in practice. In the presence of this need, the importance of our presenting the same petition as the early disciples is apparent. That petition must be carefully understood. It was a much larger one than we too often make it. We minimize its meaning by adding to its words. They did not say, Lord, teach us how to pray, but Lord, teach us to pray. A great many people know how to pray, but they do not pray. This request, teach us how to pray, would refer simply to the theory. The petition, teach us to pray, is of much fuller import and includes theory and practice. It is interesting to notice the circumstances in which the disciples prefer this request. And it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, that when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray. It is hardly possible to read these words without seeing the connection between their request and their observation of the Lord. Jesus himself was preeminently a man of prayer, and there is no doubt that they had often seen him at prayer, and in all probability had heard him. Although he never prayed with them, or used of his own prayers the same words he used of theirs, 
yet it was clearly manifest to them how much prayer meant to him, and it was as though they had said, We would come into this secret of thine. It was a request arising from their conviction of the value of prayer in his life. The answer of Jesus was far more comprehensive than at first sight may appear. Immediately he gave them a pattern and a parable. The pattern itself was not exhaustive, for it consisted of the recitation of certain sentences from the form of prayer included in his manifesto. He then gave them a parable which taught by contrast the readiness of God to hear and answer. If through importunity is the answer, they could be persuaded to give, how much more would God give out of the love of his heart? This pattern and parable, however, constitute nothing more than the local, immediate, and partial answer of Jesus to their request. Later he gave them much detailed teaching in his paschal discourses, and yet not even this final teaching exhausted his great and gracious answer. He is himself, in his revelation of the place and power of prayer in human life, the supreme answer to their request. By the whole fact of incarnation and perfect life, of atonement, resurrection, and perpetual priesthood, does Christ answer this preliminary prayer. It is well for us to remember that we are in direct succession to these disciples, that their requests are our requests, and his answers to them are his answers to us. Making all allowance for a distinguishing between things which differ, between matters which pertain to the specific message of the early days of Jesus and matters connected with the commission under which we serve, it still remains true that his essential teaching was intended for us as well as for those who first heard it. When he stood, surrounded by that first group of disciples, he prayed, and in the course of his prayer he said, Neither for these only do I pray, but for them also that believe on me through their word. I always feel warmly near to the heart of Christ when I read these words, for I know that he saw me also, and included me in his priestly intercession. As there he prayed for us with them, so also in all his teachings he spoke to us as to them. End of chapter 1